This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theater Wing Seminars Working in the Theater This seminar, Design Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. This is the 23rd year that we've brought these seminars to you, and they come from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on design, and the panelists today have just received the 1996-97 American Theatre Wing Award for Best Design. They uh, get this award for Broadway, off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. And it's a very important award, and it carries with it a small but important stipend. The American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre have tried to bring all of the elements that have make up what it is to work in the theatre, from the playwright, the producer, the director, the costume, the set designer, lighting designer, and special effects. And we do this as a service to the community. This is the goal of the American Theatre Wing, to service the community through the theatre. We do it with our seminars, and we do it with our hospital shows, which goes back to the Second World War, and the stage door canteen, which is one more way of bringing theatre to those who cannot come to it. We bring theatre to hospitals, nursing homes, and AIDS centres. We have a program called Introduction to Broadway, which brings young people from the schools into Broadway to see their very first Broadway show. And along with that program is Theatre in Schools, which is people like you see today on this panel, and artists of producers and directors and, and the playwrights going out to the schools to talk to the young students on a one-to-one -one basis on what it is to work in a theatre. Most of this is helping the students enlarging their vocabulary, their goals, their imagination, as well as casting our bread upon the waters. I hope that they will become the future theater goers that we all want, need, and should nourish. And today's seminar on the design is uh, presided over by Professor Tish Dates, who is a theater critic and as well as a historian of the theater, and Beverly Emmons, who is one of our eminent lighting designers. And I'm going to turn this over to them immediately so they, in turn, can introduce the panel to you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mrs. Stevenson. Um, I'm Tish Dace, and it's my pleasure to introduce the rest of the panelists, beginning with the distinguished lighting designer, Beverly Emmons, who's just to my left. Uh, Beverly lights theater, dance, and opera all over the United States and Europe. She was originally a dancer, and she has done lighting uh, very sensitively with such uh, eminent choreographers as Martha Graham and Merce Cunningham. She has lit such experimental theater luminaries as Richard Foreman, Meredith Monk, and Robert Wilson, and such music celebrities as Bette Midler and David Byrne. For her work on Broadway, she has won or been nominated for several Tony Awards, and she has won the last two years American Theatre Wing Design Awards for lighting, respectively, Passion and The Heiress. For her off-Broadway designs, she's won an Obie and two Bessies, and if, if this weren't enough, She's the artistic director of the Lincoln Center Institute, where she provides a really important service by 
providing terrific examples of the performing arts for large numbers of young people and then helping them to learn how to respond to that sort of work. Uh, she also operates there a nifty black box called the Clark Studio Theater. And in her spare time, <laughs> Beverly does oral histories of unsung heroes, such as electricians who work for dance companies. To my far right is Angela Wendt, the costume designer for the hit musical Rent. In addition to designing it for Broadway, she was with the show from the very beginning, when it was first uh, a little studio workshop at New York Theatre Ensemble and then a full production there. She's worked with other theaters in New York, such as New York Stage and Film and the New York Shakespeare Festival at the Public Theatre. And it will come as no surprise that this with it urban contemporary designer has created costumes for the music videos of such artists as Mac Maxi Priest, Shaba Ranks, Nina Hagen, and LL Cool J. She has brought with us a member of the Rent Ensemble, Aiko Nakasone, who plays a number of roles in Rent. Um, you'll remember her as Roger's irritating mother on those answering machine messages, and as the perhaps even more irritating uh, television producer um, who keeps calling Mark Cohen and trying to get him to sell out and start working for her and you know not be an, a real artist anymore. Welcome, Aiko. Next to Aiko is uh, Christopher Barreca, the set designer for the poetic dance drama Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Uh, he lives on airplanes as nearly as I can make out. He works a great deal in regional theater and in Europe as well as on Broadway, off Broadway, in opera, dance, and film. Every time he calls me, he's in a different country or on another coast. And in his spare time, he teaches at Caltech, but his studio is here in New York. You figure it out. Uh, <laughs> like Angela Wendt, he has just won an American Theatre Wing Design Award. Then uh, beyond Beverly is Julie Archer. Uh, she has also won an American Theatre Wing Design Award just now. She is a very versatile designer. She's designed sets, lights, puppets, and sculptural props for several Mabu Mines shows over a number of years. She lit uh, such important Mabu Mines shows as A Prelude to Death in Venice, Sister Susie Cinema, Wrong Guys, The Warrior Ant, and The Gospel at Colonus. Her set and lighting for Hodge received an, a Meharam Award. These were the predecessor awards to the American Theatre Wing Design Awards. And her set for Vanishing Pictures received an Obie. She des has recently designed the set lighting and puppets for Mabu Mine's newest work, Peter and Wendy. Mm -hmm. And I hope she's going to tell us something about that. And next to Julie is Ruth Malachek, who is an actor, director, playwright, sometime designer, and who, in my opinion, is one of the half-dozen finest actors in the American theater today. If you missed, and this is not a joke, if you missed her performance of the title role in King Lear, you simply missed the definitive 20th century performance of this role. Welcome. We're very glad to have you with Thank us you. today uh, to join these designers, uh, Ruth. And then finally, um, Karen Tenike. Um, I should say that Mabu Mines and Gertrude Stein Theatre co-produced an epidogue. And Karen, also representing Gertrude Stein Theatre, has just received an American Theatre Wing Design Award. Um, she has brought with us uh, a computer and projection system, which she developed for that show. And she's going to, to show us that. She's designed computer environments for a number of different theaters all over the country, including CSC, Manhattan Theater Club, Yale Rep, Opera Delaware, Tulsa Opera, Portland Stage, the Philadelphia Festival Theater for New Plays. And she's done sets for the Cincinnati Playhouse, Indiana Rep, and the Opera Festival of New Jersey. I imagine that Karen and Chris cross paths in airports frequently. <laughs> Welcome, all of you. Um, Beverly Emmons, would you uh, begin by asking the first question? Um, well, there are lots of questions that one might, where one might start with such an interesting group of people. Uh, I, think, I think one of the first things that we need to be introduced to is this fabulous creature here uh, that Julie has. 
Can you tell us about her? Uh, Rose is, this is Rose the dog from An Epidog. And she is a Bunraku-style uh, puppet uh, operated by three puppeteers. Uh, the head puppeteer operates her head and right arm. The next puppeteer operates her left arm, and there's a puppeteer on her feet. She's a, she's a little bit uh, adapted from uh, traditional Bunraku style puppetry in that she, her head is sort of more, operated more like a, a glove puppet would be. Uh, standard Bunraku uh, is operated uh, with a rod and toggles. But I wanted to uh, give her more flexibility than she would have if she had a rod running in her neck. Um, and standard Bunraku puppets uh, of humans are generally operated vertically. And uh, she, Lee Brewer wanted her to be able to take dog stances as well as human stances. And so there was a support problem. Um, and uh, so that was, those were some of the things that we needed to, to work out. And that's who Rose is. <laughs> and she has an additional, she has a tail, which human form puppets don't have. So there was some interesting <laughs> choreography trying to operate that. <laughs> Julie, um, An Epidog was a sequel to the Shaggy Dog animation and uh, A Prelude to Death in Venice. Did you design Rose in those shows or did someone else? Uh, someone else did. Um, Linda Hartinian designed uh, Rose and John in the uh, Shaggy Dog animation. Uh -huh. And John was the same puppet used in uh, Prelude. Did that Rose have the rod? That rose remember? was in human form, and she was more. Um, she was built somewhat differently than a traditional bunraku puppet, but yeah, it was pretty much the same uh -huh. uh, rod and and. Uh, and her ears articulate. Are you showing me? Well, I'm not a puppeteer. There's disclaimer number one. But yes, they do. I, Barbara Pollitt was the the amazing puppeteer on her. The head puppeteer and she really was able to make her come to life. <laughs> so her ears go back. <laughs> she doesn't like you. <laughs> That's when her angry. tail gets, right? She gets angry, they go back, and her yeah. tail right. hangs around. It's really wonderful. And her paws are articulated. When you work with a puppeteer to create something like that, do you, do you, you must work pretty intimately with how they need to operate it and what they're comfortable in doing, as well as direct the, what the director wants it to do. Right, yeah. Um, the puppeteers um, who worked Rose were really instrumental in, in the development of, of how she um, was built in terms of what she needed to be able to do and what was possible. I, would, I was working out of New York at the time, and so I would build her to a point and then send her for them to work with her and, and to give me feedback, and they'd ship her back, and I'd do some stuff and send her back again. So she really, she evolved over um, quite a period of time with, uh, you know, certain problems being worked out. Barbara, um, she's, she's quite, she's light, but the position that Barbara held, had to help hold her in, um, leaves quite a strain on your back. Yeah. And you're doing something like that. Mm -hmm. Right, and there's no... Uh, traditional bunraku, Japanese bunraku puppets weigh between, um, I think it's something like 10 to 60 pounds. And they often have support rods. But their movement is... Um, they're they're uh, more traditional movement, and, and uh, it's somewhat stylized and limited compared to what Rose does a, a, a ballet dance with a partner in Epidog, and she does all kinds of you know, really amazing movement. And so she, she's basically, without support, she's pretty much just a pile of 
Rags. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth, you supplied the voice as well as some of the narration for an epidog. Did Julie's design of Rose influence your voice, your acting? Um, how, how, how did the two relate to each other? Well, uh, Rose, this character Rose, who you first meet in the Shaggy Dog animation, is either a woman who is in love with a man who she thinks treats her as a dog, or it's a dog who wishes she was a woman because she's in love with her master. So basically, it's a love story between a man and a dog. In the Shaggy Dog animation, as Julie said, the dog is represented as a woman, the puppet of a woman. Um, in Prelude to Death in Venice, which is the bridge play between uh, Shaggy Dog and an epidog, uh, you see the male puppet who is constantly making phone calls to uh, women, all kinds of women, girlfriends, mother, uh, agent, uh, friend, uh, constantly on two miniaturized New York Street telephones. In an epidog, both Rose and some, and, and Bunny, who she murders in The Shaggy Dog, are together in a place called the Bardo, which is the Tibetan land uh, between death and reincarnation. So that's where they meet. And in this version, Rose is a dog, definitely a dog. So the puppet, of course, defines, absolutely determines how she would speak, what tones of voice she would respond in, what the timbre of the voice should be, just as the woman rose puppet determined other uh, parameters for the voice. So my job in, uh, in an epidog is to watch this dog uh, literally to never take my eyes off of this dog and to try to make what Julie and Barbara have made together, the physical dog and the articulation of the dog, um, be realized vocally so that we make one creature in the end of all. And she has psychology and she takes puns and the script is, uh, which is by Lee Brewer and who is also the director, it's very pun-filled uh, comedy but it is, all in all, a way of Rose trying to find her way to her next incarnation, which uh, at the end of an epidog is, becomes a warrior ant. That's what she becomes, which is another play. <laughs> <laughs> is this a good time to show the video? Uh, I'm asking whoever is going to turn it on. We, ha we have a, a couple of minutes to show you from an epidog. Um, if the television people are ready. Okay. Thank you. The animal in me tells the dog in me, I 
Before we actually see the demonstration, something about what you developed with your computer uh, environment system for the same show and Epidog. Sure. Um, John Reeves and Cheryl Faber, the artistic directors of Gertrude Stein, uh, were interested in doing some projections with the, using the computer. And we sort of started out um, thinking about using a uh, program called Director, which is used for multimedia um, CD-ROM applications. And we were going to do, I guess, what would be called traditional sort of cell animations on the computer, where you draw each frame, and then the director program moves through those cells. But that seemed to me to be an awful lot of work. And to fill um, a whole show would have been kind of impossible in the time frame, because I was brought on very late in the project. And so what I started to think about um, was how we could have the animation move with the actor. Because I think I don't have that much experience in using video for the theater, but a lot of times when you have a film or something like that, the actor is really married to the speed of the film. And it's hard to, um, if, if one of them gets off, it's very hard you know, to catch up. And so I thought if we can have something that moves together, if we have a computer operator who can move the projections with the actor, then that could be a very exciting combination. Mm -hmm. And um, so I proposed this, and uh, uh, one of the staff members, Hal Eager, went out and did some research and uh, found a, a program for us to use that would, uh, one of the problems is that particularly, um, this was a very, very wide screen, that it's, it's the computer's ability to redraw it can be very slow. And so one of Hal's challenges was to find a program that would be able to draw, redraw in real time. And so that it would give a, a seamless quality instead of kind of a jerky one frame to the next quality, which it often does. Um, and we found one that was pretty good. I mean, it still wasn't perfect. I mean, it still gave us a bit of a jerky quality. Um, but we kind of got used to it and uh, tried to make it work um, for us. Um, and so I guess we could uh, have a look at it. So this, this, is, this is projected scenery? This is pro what is it projected on? Tell us a little uh, bit about are, the shape uh, of the space. There or. are uh, four screens at the back of the theater, which are kind of like set up, uh, I think, like this. And uh, the, uh, there's a card in the computer, a video card in the computer, that splits the signal into five uh, different monitors. and, and uh, Four of those monitors are on the stage, which are LCD panel projectors, and then the other one goes to the uh, monitor for Julia. This is our computer um, operator, Julia Carr. And it, the fifth one has the tools on it so that she can see. It's kind of like a little ground plan with a little camera inside. Um, but let's look at it first, mm -hmm. look at the effect first, and then we'll show you okay. how it's mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's have the demonstration then. Um, for, uh, to create the, bar the Bardo, Lee had uh, talked a little bit about using um, the heaven heavens, but not heavens. The heavens is in the stars as, as opposed to heaven, heaven. 
And uh, so I thought I would create, he was originally thinking about that, I think, for one part of the show. And I thought, well, let's keep a, a whole environment for the whole show to give it continuity. And uh, this is where we started out when Ruth, or when uh, Rose and Bunny are uh, discussing uh, their lives. And they're floating through this uh, particular part of the bardo. They're meeting other animals who, meeting but not, other, other animals are, are uh, flying by them. We experimented a little bit with um, having the environment move with the actor, which was the, which was the goal. And we found we could do a little bit of that, but to do too much of it, you got a little bit dizzy. And also we had, um, the program really was not made to do this. <laughs> um, it's a um, virtual reality markup language uh, for the World Wide Web um, program. And to split it out into that many screens was very stressful for it. And it actually, on opening night, we crashed um, in the middle of the second act. And we had like the program uh, header come up and we just shut it off. We have a very, uh, Mr. Brewer is a, a very understanding director. I don't know many people who would be willing to put up with that. And I told him beforehand that that might happen. And he was like, well, okay, well, then I'll just get up and I'll make a speech and I'll tell everybody that uh, that's, that's what uh, happens sometimes with new technology. Uh, let's go, can we uh, scoot over to the uh, uh, clove. That's the that's the closest thing. Oh yes, you can show the tools. <laughs> um, here you can uh, see the ground plan of the space, and that's the that little uh, what's called a Pinocchio that's circling around there is the the camera, and that sort of moves on one plane within the environment, and then there's the the little camera. You can see with the looks like a little light that moves the the uh, camera up and down, and you can also do this is running very fast because it's on a slightly different configuration than we had in the theater. She wasn't talking nearly so fast as she is now, um, but you can do short animations too. And we used a couple of them. This was one of them. One of the great, because uh, I've also done very limited work with uh, panty slides, and I found that to be very, very laborious, especially creating uh, things on the computer. It just took absolutely forever to get the high enough resolution to go to film, um, slide film. Whereas this is very low resolution. It can be created very quickly. Um, I mean, as we're working in the theater, we can make a lot of changes. So it's very flexible, which is also part of the goal, I oh. think. Why don't we move along and come back to that in between? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, I, I'd just like to ask you one quick question. How do we visit your worldwide website? What's the address? Um, www.inch. Uh, inch.com slash um, tilde k-t-e-n-e-y-c-k -E -E Terrific. Um, Angela Wendt, would you uh, talk to us uh, about Ico's costume and how you approach the costume design for rent? Mm, okay. Basically, um, Aiko, this is her East Village character. Everybody in Neosolbo has a multitude, multiple characters. And this is our little, we call her the cyber girl, techno girl, club kid outfit with like the new fabrics. And this all was done one year ago. It doesn't even seem that new anymore now. Um, and um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of, um, to me, it was the balance also between, um, Aiko is very costumey, actually, as opposed um, to many of the East Village characters. 
sort of the balance to see real people on stage um, and not do um, extreme costumization. But um, I guess it's not a great example since she is more costumey than a lot of people. Mm -hmm. What are the fabrics involved here? The, the jacket looks like it's partly made out of uh, some sort of hologram Hologram, material. yeah. Hologram print-on fabric. This is just an old parachute um, um, overall, coverall actually, that's tacked permanently around her waist. What's Do you want to prop? get up? Yeah. What's, What's this? This is her backpack. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Aiko. You've got a, a, a baby tea, very, very midriff revealing there. That is her and uh, the director's idea. It's, I always showed my, my belly <laughs> during belly. rehearsal. And belly chain, and then... There's two uh, parts to this jacket here with a little pins all over. And this is a parachute pants that comes all the way on top, but they, we just tied it and sort of rigged it so that it looks like it's tied over. <laughs> and shoes, we put a added platform. Added platform. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the baby tee is made of, of latex or spandex or what, what is that? Uh, no, it's a lycra. We just quilted it in the front. Mm. I see. And then there's um, this fun company, Sears and Robots, who does the, <laughs> who does the little image where um, the eyes open and close, sort right. of. <laughs> <laughs> what about the other costumes in red? The street clothes. Where did they come from? Um, well, I, with a lot of people, um, I really looked at who walked in and who they were because a lot of them are very young, mm -hmm. and um, in the singing it was very important to me that how they behave, that I support that with the clothing. Mm -hmm. um, and then also at the same time create the whole um, multitude of characters. Where did you get the clothing from? Um, where did we get the clothing from? For the first time we did a lot of Salvation Army, mm -hmm. um, Domsies in Brooklyn, thrift shopping. Um, little shops in the East Village. Mm -hmm. Claudia made a lot of things. We ended up making a paper coat, which was great. Um, mm -hmm. An ongoing collage that Claudia did at night at New York Theatre Workshop in the lobby. <laughs> we just created that was, that some was fabrics in the studio too. workshop before you did a full New York production. Theater workshop, New York Theatre Workshop. Yeah. 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 And then what? The next design. Well, the next design, the, the incredible thing the first time around was, too, that we had about four feet of snow <laughs> during most of the time. So we ended up doing the whole show pretty much in five or six days because we said, well, the weather is not getting any better and tech is around the corner. So um, we did it in a couple of days. And um, then we had only four weeks to move it to Broadway after we realized. And then all of a sudden, from just creating a picture on stage, we needed 240 costumes because you need doubles. 240 costumes? Yes, with doubles and triples and understudies. So, of course, um, Salvation Army doesn't have doubles and triples. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a whole different ball game all of a sudden, which is really strange, too, because you start out with some um, authentic clothing from Salvation Army and places like that, my own closet, wherever. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, you have to just make all these things. Angela, are you saying that you designed and somebody built in four weeks 240 costumes? Well, no, we didn't build all 240, but a big part of that. And we shopped. Yeah, we were. How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't sleep, but we worked day and night. It was pretty crazy. It was very insane. We, we had a very good, t I had a very good team of people working with me, you otherwise have, it's not you, possible. Do you have a union in costume? <laughs> <laughs> do I have one? A union? A union? Yes. Yes. And what happens when you go to the Salvation Army for clothes? What happens there with the union? It's, they, they, there's no Nothing. difficulty with designers. No, the designers can, yeah. can lay your hands on anything and declare yeah, it. Whatever. Mm -hmm. 
what you it's want. It's your choice where you, you 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 do that. Exactly. You don't have to abide by costume or by. No, you uh, don't have to make everything. How more do you have? Do you have to abide by costs, the union costs? You know, Not to whatever buy it is, it is. Yeah. It, it, whatever it is, it is. Mm -hmm. What's your background? Where did, how did you get to be a costume designer? Um, I started in fashion first, knitwear and weaving. Mm -hmm. And um, then I actually um, did a lot of different things and a lot of traveling. And then I started assisting um, a fabulous designer, Gabriel Berry, um, and assisted her for three years. And then being German, I felt, gee, you know, I didn't study this. So I went back to Berlin <coughs> as a guest student to the university in Berlin for setting costume design and was over there for barely a year. And it was really good to be there, but I really felt I learned a lot assisting and working in the profession. Mm -hmm. So I came back after a year and started uh, designing my own shows. Angela, Could I ask if yes. we go around to find out where they started, where they came from? Sure. Oh my, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Very beginning or, or how I got into the theater? You mean I how I got it? Which comes first? The chicken or the egg, I guess. Um, well, I, I got into the theater strangely. I was a musician. I was a musician through college. I didn't study the theater in college at all. And, uh, but I worked in union scene shops to put myself through college. I worked at a place called Atlas Scenic Studio, which is up in Bridgeport. And I went to the University of Connecticut. I was a Connecticut resident. That was a good place to go if you wanted to save money. And um, uh, by working through the scene shop there, I just strangely got fascinated with the theater and felt like musically, particularly because um, I wasn't going to be B.B. King. I discovered that, although I love jazz and play jazz in clubs a lot. Um, and I, was, I felt like uh, I was trapped in the other part of the musical world, which is repeating things over and over and over again. And the theater was creative, and it allowed me to do things. And I had a lot of really nice people who kind of kept pushing me, you know, in the shops there saying, do it, just go for it. So then I ended up going to Yale, strangely enough. <laughs> and uh, that's sort of how I got into the profession. I took, uh, took time off for, before going to school and then went, came to New York and started working with Mabu Mines and just kept working with Mabu Mines. <laughs> 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 that's it. Um, I studied uh, graphic design and advertising in undergraduate school, and I worked in that uh, for a number of years. And then I did a uh, community theater um, show. I did the sets and costumes for that. And I thought this is what I really wanted to do. It's, it's a lot more uh, creative and artistically satisfying than working in advertising. And um, then I, I kept doing some uh, community stuff, and then I got very serious, and I thought I really need to go someplace and study this. And so I went to uh, Yale. And um, I was graduated in 91. And I've uh, tr been trying to work my way through the system since then. <laughs> uh, Chris, I'd love for you and Beverly to explain how you created the magic of your magic realist set. Uh, the windows kept appearing and disappearing. And I know the two of you must have collaborated very closely together. How did you do well, it? Well, there was a third person there. Yeah, I mean, well, very it was, important. Well, right. it was Jules. <laughs> there was Jules. And that was Graziella, I would yeah. say. It was very right. important. I would, I would start by saying, what did you and Grazi talk about for the creation of that? Well, wall? you know, it's interesting. Um, she talked a lot about growing up and uh, how, you know, visions did appear, you know. Uh, she saw, and I don't want to say she saw the Virgin Mary up in the corner of the room, uh, although she sort of <laughs> did say that she saw, you know, <laughs> angels in her room and it was very real. It wasn't uh, that in that culture, you know, we have a hard time because we've gotten Grazie so is distant. From Argentina. Yeah, from Argentina. And mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I just banged the microphone. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, and in that, she brought me a lot of information and a lot of, you know, pictures and photographs from, you know, things she had in some books, of photographs from photographers from there. We're talking and, about uh, the director, choreographer. Yes, oh, I'm sorry. Well, Graziella Daniela. And uh, we both worked with her before, and um, we spent a lot of time just exploring what, how to deal with the fact that actually this is a very non-conventionally structured piece, you know. 
it's a novel in which you're told what happens in the beginning and the actual action of the piece is to discover who's responsible the writer is he you know he's dealing a lot with social issues so we were trying to grapple with how to deal with the way the retelling the way we remember things and we you know she had one picture which was fascinating it was a a photograph of a town square in which there was a shadow it was just a tree and a shadow of a tree and there was some stain on the ground but you looked at it and there was you there was a moment that you knew had passed that was very was very frightening in a way but also mysterious and and important and um we kind of latched onto that picture of that which was in a square somewhere in South America. And then we struggled a lot. I must say, we did a workshop of the piece, which I, I think a lot of you guys, we do that a lot. And you know, we struggled with this thing of the chronicler, because there's a big thing in the piece of this person who's telling the story. And we had a person in the house speaking the lines, and we had somebody standing on stage speaking the lines. And we, we tried to actually, we thought maybe we'd have Marquez on stage, and we decided that was a bad idea, although we did try it. Um, and what happened was I kept doodling in these workshops, and I, uh, which I don't have anymore. They've all disappeared, all these sketches. So that's just the way things happen. You lose these things. You end up with the detritus, you know, just the things that get left over, which is too bad. But um, uh, of course, what we do is what's on stage, not anyway. We all know that. But at any rate, um, you know, I kept drawing this figure, this shadow of a figure up the proscenium and outside the proscenium and all over the place. And, at some point, Graziella said, you know, I, I really feel like he's a presence. He's right there. <laughs> so uh, we ended up kind of that as our central image, strangely enough. I guess, I mean, you I wanna, have the model. You want to show us yeah. the model? Well, it, it, yeah, and it I, I should more, say what's funny. More sense. Yeah, what's funny is, is that... Yeah, let's uh, show people. Um, th this is the actual model. This is a photograph of the actual... Uh, image. I have to say this is, was a complete accident and I hate admitting that but of course we all know that the best things come out of accidents. Everybody in this room knows that. Um, the accident was that um, we had the idea of the shadow. We were going to have the character, which he did, uh, walk up on stage and, um, and stand and we had positioned, we had spent a lot of time, you know, in matching that shadow so when he walked into view suddenly the shadow that you'd been looking at for 10 minutes was his shadow. Um, but what would happen is we got into the theater and, uh, you know, Beverly turned on the lights on the scrim. We're all sitting there and we're, it wasn't what we, we didn't think we were going to see through it. I mean, now I know it's really basic and you would think that we would know that, but, uh, but we were sitting there and we were seeing everything that was going on upstage and we were a bit mortified at first. And, and then we all went, it really says everything. Uh, and I actually think it was Beverly who said that. She said, wait, guys, just look at what's there. <laughs> Stop talking, because we were talking about we were, we were going to have to black it out or what we were going to we, do. What we were seeing through was, was this beautiful set of doors. That which are the fatal doors. The I fatal mean, doors that the killed. character comes through against which he gets killed, which we then go, went on to recreate. And the, the actor making the shadow was standing, where he was about that size, um, coming up from the audience. Yeah. That was beautiful. So, so show us the wall. Um, the wall, wow. You know what's the problem is I think this model has, uh, I'm not sure I can actually pull the it dust. out. It's <laughs> <laughs> a problem. I didn't check this model before I came here. Oh, my God, it's all glued together. Okay, well, what was interesting about this, about, <laughs> what oh, was well. wonderful was that Chris Make had made. Make it to your advantage, there Chris. We go. Come on. Go ahead. Well, we can imagine it. Well, Chris uh, had made a wall, um, had made a wall that, um, oh, this oh, doesn't even come out. out. Yeah, take the wall. We're going to just do something we always do. And I, you're going to all hate me when I do this. But I, we do this all the time. Because then I'm going to rip it out of the model. God, I, boy, my, my, I have very good assistants. And they... Uh, very strong. There, there we, we go. go. There we go. Um, well, go ahead. You started to talk. Well, no, no, yeah. This, I mean, what, what you saw was a wall, the back wall of the theater, except obviously structured and painted and very beautiful, that had images on it. And then things came out of it, like this pair of doors uh, was out in the middle of the space. But in fact, they fit and disappeared and became part of the wall. You go, hunt. I mean, the idea came out of that is that we wanted, we didn't, given uh, Marquez's work, we didn't want to be... Um, we didn't want to be scenic, I guess is the way to put it. That it's very, it's in your, it's somewhat, it's, it's political. It's in your face. And we, 
Both Graziella and I, for a long time, felt we just wanted to paint the back wall of the theater. And oddly enough, the doors came out of a thing we were supposed to be in the um, originally, because this did start out as a dance piece. It came to Broadway because both Bernie Gerstein and, and Andre felt like they just they saw the workshop and they decided that's what they wanted to do. But at the time, we were looking at and help me out. It's on Theater Row. It's a, it's like the Joyce. It's a looking down sort of theater. Um, uh, I, I can't remember. Anyway, we were on trying off to. Broadway House? Yeah, yeah, on 40. And any, what, what, what happened was there was this huge hole. We, we had no, there were no entrances. The theater's like 20 feet deep. But there were, there's this huge loading door. And oh. we said, oh, we'll paint the wall, the theater, and then we'll put our own doors in there. And, uh, you know, we'll have these doors pop out. And, and so what happened is when we moved into the setting that we ended up doing, which was the Plymouth, that idea, idea became essential because what happened is that we. All the visions came out of this wall. Things would appear from the wall. There was this window that seemed glued to the wall. And then the window moved to another place where it was needed for another window. And part, then it opened when it got And then the it opened, you know, right. and, and strange things would happen behind it. So the visions came always out of the environment that we were in. You turned a disadvantage into a really exciting positive design principle. That's what all designers yeah. do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. How, how did you actually make those doors appear to just materialize out of nowhere? Doors or windows? Windows, excuse me, windows. Windows. Well, there were two windows. Do these open even? Yeah, they do. They actually there do were, the model. Were, yeah, they may have there, sold. Yeah, there they are. Yeah. It was now there. you see it, now you don't. There's another window up here. People, and, and then the frame, another window there. And the frame hung in front of it. Yes. So, and the frame was on something. That, that moved it, so it was either here or it went down there, um, turning as it went. And then, and then uh, I had a, had some moving light equipment that had a gobo cut to also to match that frame. So, and we had two of those kinds, so that as the window moved in a sort of a stately move from one place to the other, we we suddenly lit it with two more frames. So suddenly it became like three frames, one of them tumbling. And moving, and another one moving with, with different colors. So, so yeah, it, be, it became surreal. Which again, strangely, way. is what made it possible. Because when the window moved by, I have to say, you know, it's always those things in theater. I imagined a puppet. I imagined a little puppet bridge, and there was going to be this little puppet window. And I was informed, I guess, quite logically by the shops. They said, you know, that's a window. It's traveling a long way. That's a long line. That's those long arms. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So then they created this mechanism. Well, the mechanism, boy, I mean, it sounded like a jet engine taking off. And, it was, and, uh, it was clumsily It was clumsy. I mean, eventually they figured it out. But what happened was we realized that the movement wasn't, it wasn't what we imagined. Because we imagined a window sort of tumbling like a puppet and everything. And so, you know, Beverly said, you know, added these things. And suddenly then the window seemed like we imagined it. Which was well, there was a step in between, and that was that Jules Fisher was going to design yeah. the lighting for this piece, and because he, he had been very involved with the ideas with Graziella, and he, I got a call from him in May, April, something like that, saying, please, please, uh, he had to go do Victor Victoria, whose dates had changed, so he couldn't do Chronicle, but he very much wanted to do Chronicle because he'd been so involved, and so he had the light plot essentially finished in his head, if not entirely on paper, but would I cue it? I said, sure. What, a, what, a, what an up. What an up to work in a light plot designed by Jules Fisher. I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, uh, he has um, the imagination and the strength of character and the reputation to get the kind of the equipment that normally managers don't want to pay for. So, um, so we had, we had uh, the, two, the two, we had four moving lights. And the template that matched the window had been specially etched to, to match exactly that window. Um, we, had, uh, we had 5K Fresnels with color scrollers on them on diagonal for diagonal backlights and diagonal front lights. And we had, um, we had about 400 lighting units, which isn't a lot for, for musical nowadays, but 138 of them had color changers on it. Mm -hmm. So each of those 134 lights had a choice of 38 colors. So it was just delicious. You could really paint. You could really, really paint with color. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, the one other thing that's funny about the walls, like you notice there was some birds. She mentioned templates. You know, we had this idea at one time, well, bird imagery was something just subliminally for Graziella was really, really important. I mean, 
and it was subliminal and it was actually painted into the walls you can see there's a strange kind of change of texture there are actually three birds that create a flower uh, you don't really see it and I'm not sure actually most of the audience ever noticed that and what was good about this, I'll never forget, there was one moment we flashed these templates of birds on there and we all went, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, ideas. no, that was one of those things that... Um, uh, Sometimes you can't be too literal. And it's, it yeah, well, also it is a little bit about, you know, when you ask about magic realism, that word, I know both Graziella and I and I think other people, you... You want to embrace the word on one time, but at the same time, you kind of want to go like this. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because it, it doesn't necessarily talk about, you know, what it is that you're trying to do, you know what I mean, or the action or the event you're trying to create. And it's become a kind of catchphrase for certain things, mm -hmm. a catch-all for a certain way of imagining things. And um, so it's interesting. Most of the things we did actually came out of necessity. And those were the fun things, like the food, you know, people always talk about the food jumping off the table. Why did you do the funny? Well, it was sitting in rehearsal, and there was this 28-foot-long table. It flew in. <laughs> Covered with food. Well, it didn't flow in originally. We, it was sitting there, you know, in rehearsal, in the workshop. There's this huge table. And I felt like, well, in our imaginations, what would this table do? Because I can't get it anywhere. I can't go anywhere with this table. It doesn't fit over there. <laughs> Or over there, yeah. and we just said, it, so it, it needs to dance. You know, it needs it needs People to float to away. Dance. And how isn't that what happens in our dreams? Things float away. You know, something else or in our memory. And the food was completely out of these two dancers jumped on the table and danced. You know, they they got up on the table and danced. So and, you had to get the food and out of the way. It was Graziella who said she said, you know, kind of sheepishly because she thought, God forbid, anybody would do this. She said. Well, couldn't the food just kind of like go like this? <laughs> <laughs> and they did it. So it flew. <laughs> so it flew. No, they no. It was it was puppetized in a way. It was puppet food. The, the, well, the entire the entire table came in, flew in yeah. with the food apparently sitting on it, mm -hmm. and then they all had their own strings, and then broop, they all just took off from the surface of the table. It was wonderful. That's great. great. Angela. Do, has Bloomingdale's really created a <coughs> rent-inspired line of, of clothing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you feel about this? Do, do you get any kind of money out of this? Or? Um, not, not yet. There are lawyers involved right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, otherwise, are you flattered, pleased? Um... No, it's so hard to talk about this because in a way it was flattering. On the other hand, if somebody just goes ahead and, you know, imitates or copies what you did on stage and puts it in a store, like Bloomingdale's, especially with a play like Rent and what Rent stands for, it really was very strange, a very, you know, gives you a just weird feeling. exactly the fighting, selling out to commercial interests that the show is about to start off with. So. Yeah. It's ironic. How did you get hired? You hadn't done a, a great deal of work in the New York theater. We all know that actors go and audition. How did designers get hired? Um, I did, I worked with Michael Greif, the director, before. Mm -hmm. We did Marisol, Marisol at the public theater. And he called me up and he said, um, I am doing this workshop. We have no money. Can you do the sets too? <laughs> so I did set and costumes um, after, I read, after I read the script and I liked it. And um, that was one year ago, one and a half years ago. That's usually how you, know, you work with somebody once. And if it worked out, you, you look for a chance to work together again. How did you get the original job with Marisol? Through Gabriel Berry, the designer who I assisted. Right. You know, which is also um, the other way how you get jobs. Hopefully, people you assist mm -hmm. will also recommend you um, for jobs that they don't want to do or can't do or whatever. Mm -hmm. Christopher, you'd worked with Grazi before. Uh, how did you get the first job working with her? Well, you know, strangely, it's the oddest thing. I, you know, always divulging these things, uh, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it was very funny. I did a musical that I didn't do. 
about six years ago in which Jules was involved. Stop. And it was I called. Miss what I didn't do. Stop. What does that mean? It means that I got involved with it, and then I decided, and I, I'm going to not mention it because I think that would be wrong, but it was a particular director, and we just didn't see eye to eye, and I very quickly said, look, I'm not the right person for this. You should find somebody else. Mm -hmm. But in the meetings that I had with Jules on that, for some reason, Jules decided <laughs> that Graziella might like to work with me, and that's actually how it happened. And I, I really respect Jules for that, because I was a pretty youngish person the first time that I worked with Graziella. And you know, she's worked with Santo and a lot of other designers, and I feel that that, that was a real, it was a privilege for me. And uh, he was right. We love, I, I, well, I, I love working with her, you know. It's the energy. When we talk, we both talk at the same time, and we both listen to each other at the same time. Uh, I know that's something that maybe some of us know happens a lot. We just managed to continue that on for hours and hours and hours, and uh, it's the greatest pleasure you can have. Karen, how did you hook up with Gertrude Stein originally? Um, I went to school with John Reeves, one of the artistic directors, and I uh, did several of his uh, plays at Yale. And uh, then when he and his uh, wife Cheryl started their company, I started working with them. And uh, they were also working with Lee. And we did a workshop, a, a reproduction, I guess, of um, Red Horse animations using some uh, World Wide Web technology to do projections for that. And so that's how I met Lee. And Julie, how about you and Mabu Mines? How did you originally get with them? Um, well, like I said, I came to New York and um, had, a, had a friend who was working with the company and sort of hung around. I was a, an artist, a sculptor at the time, and Ruth asked me, well, I started out as a babysitter, actually. Ah, see, took, I knew. Took care of the children. <laughs> It's great, actually. Um, and Ruth asked me to uh, design the set for um, a project that she was doing at Recherche, a studio that Mabelmind started, and um, and then asked me to design the lights for something else. Just didn't know how to wire a plug. Didn't know the first thing about it, but yeah, Julie's a real original because if she doesn't know how to do something, she figures out. The, the Rose one. is the first puppet in a production that Julie's made, the first that she's Once made that's been in a production. I have to be rude and Sorry. bring this panel's, it's bring to this panel's attention the fact that we have to close it. I couldn't be sorrier because it's been absolutely fascinating to hear what goes on behind the scenes and before it becomes the scene. This is the American Theatre Wing's seminars on design and the panelists today have all won the awards from the american theater wing on the 1996 designs they are lighting people and costume and set and special effects and they have been absolutely fascinating as they've explained their craft to you this is one of a series of the american theater wing seminars on working in the theater coming to you from the graduate center of the city University of New York, and today's co-chairs have been Professor Tish Dates, who is a theater critic, and Beverly Emmons, who is lighting design. And I thank you and I thank this panel for being with us and sharing your knowledge and techniques with us. Thank you very, very much. Ha, 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 ha.